Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Man, I feel like I'm surrounded by the glory cloud up here right now. Whew. It is thick. Well, friends, good evening. On this uh, Sunday here, we don't usually get to celebrate the Transfiguration on a Sunday. It usually falls during the week, so this is a great privilege this year that we get the Feast of the Transfiguration on a Sunday. We get to soak in this beautiful mystery of the Lord's life. I want to start with this. I, uh, I've got a very dear friend of mine. Um, her and her husband, they are expecting their eighth child any day now. Uh, any day now, this little baby could be showing up. The baby's due at the end of the month, but when it's your eighth child, it's like, who knows when it's coming, right? So with this pregnancy, just like with the last many pregnancies that she's had, I've just had the great gift of, like, as their friend, um, the great, I don't know, joy of, of journeying with them. You know, I was the first person they told with this pregnancy, just like the last many. It's one of the cool things. People know as a priest, you're good at keeping secrets. So that's how that works. So um, just the joy of just thinking about, you know, who this little one's going to be, dreaming about what their life is going to be, just all of those things, because all the siblings are just all so amazing and different, and um, yeah, it's just, it's so cool, and just the excitement of getting to finally meet this little person and see this little person, and, and then, you know, I'm just looking forward to, in the next coming days or weeks, getting that text from my buddy saying that we're on the way to the hospital and the rosary comes out, start, you know, Hail Mary, Holy Grace, you know, start going through the rosary like crazy, and then waiting expectantly for that text that says, Mom and baby are doing great, everything's great, all the toes that are there are there, all the fingers that are there are there, everybody's good and healthy, and then, um, then the pictures start rolling in, and that's awesome. And then with the last few of their births, I, I've been just so blessed that they, you know, I'm one of the first people that gets invited to the hospital and get to see the little one, and and it's just amazing. It's just I'm not telling you anything you as parents don't know. It's just, as a priest, it's a really awesome gift to be invited into that. And, um, and it's the same experience of awe and wonder. You know, you've had this name in your heart praying for this little one for all these months, and all of a sudden, here's the face attached to the name, right? Behold, like, here you are. Like, I've been dying to know what you look like, and now here you are after all these months and you're beautiful and incredible. And it's just amazing to finally put the name to the face. And it's funny too, I've heard stories from, from parents how, you know, the name that you show up to the hospital with it, you expect, to, you know, to name the little one. The baby comes out and just, for whatever reason, doesn't look like Orion, you know. Like, this looks like a Maximilian. You're like, okay, right? So how funny that is that, you know, the face in some ways kind of determines the name. How funny it is that faces and names are connected. That was a hard thing for me when, we, when I first got to this parish back in 2020 of August of 2020. Just everyone's faces were still covered because of COVID. Masks were everywhere still. And it was just impossible trying to learn who you guys were as your new priest. And it was funny. I get like names were associated with these imagined versions of your faces that I filled in the gaps and then those masks came off, and I'm like, whoa, right, for some of you, right? Some of you are far more handsome than I even imagined. <laughs> but it's a funny thing, right? Names and faces. Our names are precious. Our names are precious. Scripture says that our names are inscribed upon the palm of God's hand. 
Like our names, right? Our names identify us. Our names single us out. They are trying to, to name the, the absolute utter uniqueness, the unrepeatability of each person. That none of us are just an instance of the species, that we are unique and unrepeatable and irreplaceable, indispensable members of this human family, and our name identifies us that way. And the face, I want you to do a little philosophy with me on this Sunday evening. Think about the face for a moment. The face, the face is so personal, right? The face is so personal. Like when you miss someone who's died, like, sure, like, perhaps you miss their, their hands or, I don't know, maybe their elbow. That'd be kind of weird. But it's, it's usually the face. You miss their face. The face is in some ways like the ambassador of the person. It's the outward expression of the person. Of course, it's true that, like, in my body, I, my soul, is present in every part of my body. But it's also true to say that I am somehow more present in my face. The face reveals the person in a similar way to the name. The name points to and indicates the person. The face is the outward revelation, the outward expression of the person. We could put it this way. The face is the visible image of the invisible person, right? That's what the face is. That's what the face is. Now, hold on to all of that for just a second. I want to I'm going, to com- I'm going to connect some dots, I hope. But hold on to that for a second. This whole thing about names and faces, especially the face. So today's feast, the Feast of the Transfiguration of the Lord, theologians, scripture scholars, they call this a theophany, the Greek word. Theos meaning God and phane meaning to show forth. Think of epiphany, right? So this is a showing forth, a manifestation of God in the flesh here in the person of Jesus. He's manifesting his divinity, right? He's manifesting his divinity. Now, Jesus' whole life as the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, his whole life was theophany. His whole life was, in some ways, a manifestation of God. Think about, you know, in the letter to the Hebrews, we hear this, where he says that in times past, God spoke in many and various ways through the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us through a son Right? Jesus, the Word made flesh, is not just more words about God, but He is the definitive Word from the Father's heart. He is the expression, the pressing out, the visible image of the invisible God, as Paul says, of who the invisible Father is. Right? Or think about in the Last Supper discourse where Philip turns to the Lord in such beauty, says, like just childlike wonder, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus responds to him, Philip, have I been with you so long that you still don't understand that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that Jesus is what the Father's love looks like. He is the visible image of the Father's heart. And in his public life, in his public ministry, in the events that the Scriptures scriptures relate in the Gospels, he is progressively revealing more and more and more. He's peeling back the layers of the onion through his teaching, his preaching, but most especially in his passion, death, and resurrection. He's letting himself be known. Right? There's a vulnerability that's happening. He's letting himself be known. And in letting himself be known, he's revealing the hidden Father. 
So this event, right, the transfiguration, Jesus takes with him up the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and he's transfigured before them. And it says that his clothes become like light and his face, his face, hold on to that, hold on to that. His face shines like the sun. His face shines like the sun. For these three apostles of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, what they're witnessing is divinity shining out of Jesus' human face. Right? Paul says, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of divinity has dwelt. The fullness of divinity has dwelt. And it's like they're finally seeing this, right? For Peter, James, and John, what they're, ex- what they're experiencing is this, this awe and wonder that this man who they've traveled with, who they've eaten meals with, who they've, you know, they sit around the campfire at night. They've witnessed his preaching and teaching. They, they know what his laugh sounds like. They know his eye color. This man, what they're experiencing is that this, in this man, God, is, God dwells in this man. They're experiencing what the theologians will later call in the church councils the hypostatic union, that in Jesus... Two natures come together, a divine nature and a human nature, in his one person. Like, in other words, Jesus' humanity, his human face, reveals more than just a human nature. His human nature, his human face, reveals a divine person. If you're with me, give me some of this right now. Okay, I just want to make, this is a lot, this is a lot. Okay. I want to focus for a second on, on the other figures that show up in this scene, Moses and Elijah. Why them? <laughs> that was the question that struck me when I was praying through this gospel this week. Of all the Old Testament saints that could have shown up on the mountain with Jesus in the transfiguration, why Moses and Elijah? I know they're great. Don't get me wrong. I know they're great. But, like, why not David and Jeremiah? Why not Abraham and Ezekiel? Why Moses and Elijah? Why Moses and Elijah? Because these two, these two individuals in the Old Testament, these two alone had these personal experiences of theophany on the mountain. They had their own personal experiences of theophany on the mountain. Moses, and, uh, he goes up Mount Sinai in Exodus 33 and 34, and he asks God to show him his glory. He says to the Lord, show me your face. And God says, I will let all my glory pass before you, but my face you cannot see. And he takes Moses and he places him in the cleft of the rock and he covers him, as it were, with his hand. And all of God's glory goes in front of Moses and then he pronounces his name. But his face he cannot see. And same thing with Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Elijah, he goes up Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. It's the same mountain, people. That's where he's supposed to go, right? Okay. He goes up the same mountain, has this theophany, right? Where it says that the mountain was rending, but God, the Lord was not in the mountain. There was fire and earthquake, but the Lord was not in the fire. Then he hears a still, small voice, and Elijah covers his face. He goes out of the cave, and all of God's glory and his face pass before the cave, but Elijah can't see his face because his own face is covered. Both of these men have this longing in their heart to see God's glory and to behold his face. To behold his face. And I sat with that, like that whole reality, this longing to see his face, and it puzzled me. 
because these are Jewish men. They're steeped in Jewish, a Jewish worldview of God's revelation, and they know that God is pure spirit, meaning they know that God doesn't, properly speaking, have a body. God doesn't, properly speaking, have a face like you and I have a face. And yet, here they are, longing to see God's face. In fact, this is a theme that's all throughout the Old Testament. The Hebrew word panim, which means face, appears over 400 times in the Old Testament. And a hundred of those times, it's in reference to a longing to see God's face. Lord, show us your face. So what in the world does that mean? That Moses and Elijah, these Jewish men, have a longing to see God's face. When I'm stumped by things like that, I go to Google, and I type in my question, and then I type Pope Benedict XVI. Just next to the question. Because I'm certain he will have answered my question. And he did. Listen to this. This is from a homily where Pope Benedict comes to the rescue answering my question. What did seeking God's face mean to the devout Israelite who knew that there could be no depiction of it? The question is important. Thanks, Pope Benedict. (laughs) There was a wish on the one hand to say that God cannot be reduced to an object, like an image that can be held in the hand, nor can anything be put in God's place. On the other, it was affirmed that God has a face, meaning he is a you who can enter into a relationship and who has not withdrawn into his heavenly dwelling place, looking down at humanity from on high from a distance. Okay, think back to what I was just saying earlier about what the face is. It's the revelation of the person This longing to see God's face is a longing for his heart. It's a longing to see this you that addresses humanity. Lord, show me your heart. Show me yourself. I just want to see you and know you and to be seen and known by you. So back to the mountain of transfiguration. Why does Jesus take his disciples up on the mountain, revealing his glory to them? Why is his face transfigured before Moses and Elijah, he wants to show them who he is. He wants to fulfill their heart's deepest longing. He wants to fulfill their desires. Moses and Elijah finally, unbelievably, are able to see God's face because now in Jesus, God has become man. He's become man. Something unimaginably new entered the story And the dynamic between God and humanity at Christmas, that in the incarnation, in Jesus, God now has a human face. And Moses and Elijah get to see him. And Peter and James and John, what they see for the first time is divinity pouring out of this human face. This human face that is now luminous and transfigured, however. And this is so crucial, and I want us to like hone in on this. I really want us to get this. This moment that we call the transfiguration is not where the glory of his face shines out the brightest. In fact, it will be precisely the moment that his glory is most hidden, most obscured, most disfigured, most marred in the events of the passion, the suffering, 
of Jesus, when he's abused and he's spit upon and his beard is plucked and he's beaten in the face and he's scourged and he's sweating blood and he's crowned with thorns, when you look at him and Isaiah says he's the kind of man that men turn their faces away from, when he looks like the man of sorrows, when there's horror filling that face, that's the moment when the divine face is most luminous, when it's most on display, when he is most revealing the heart of the Father. In other words, the awful face of Jesus, the man of sorrows, that's the most radiant face that most reveals who God really is. Like the transfigured face on Mount Tabor points to the suffering face of Calvary. The transfigured face of Tabor pales in comparison to the light that shines forth from the suffering face of Calvary. Because that is his heart for us. That is him unmasking and showing us who God really is. That we have a God who condescends to such an unbelievable depth that he's willing to suffer anything, to do anything, to bring us back into relationship. I want to take us one step further. I want to make, I want to make one more connection if you can handle it. Can you handle it? Yes or yes? Great, okay. Okay, in the Old Testament, beginning with the desert wandering of the Hebrew people and after the Exodus and the construction of the tabernacle and then the construction of the temple in Jerusalem, there were very precise ways that God wanted to be worshipped. In the Holy of Holies, in the heart of the temple, you had the throne where you had the mercy seat, where you had the Ark of the Covenant. And then next to that, you had the, the lampstand, the, the seven candles, the seven flames. And then next to that, over here, you had a table that had the daily offering of bread. In Hebrew, it's the bread of the presence. In the Hebrew word is lechem hapanim. So these are the three items in the heart of the temple. The church fathers looked at that and they saw a little microcosm, an image of the Trinity. You've got the Father in the throne, the Holy Spirit in the lampstand, and this table with bread. Lechem hapanim literally translates to the bread of the face. Daily offered in the temple was the bread of the face that God had been preparing his people for centuries for what you and I are about to receive. The bread of the face. It's not a cleverly devised myth, as Peter said in that second reading. No, that face that was once hidden in Bethlehem, radiant on the mountaintop, suffering on Calvary now comes to you again hidden in the Eucharist. And the last thing I'll point out is in the Adoration Chapel, that little platform that's where the monstrance sits, where the angels are holding up that thing, that platform is called a Tabor. Mount Tabor, holding up the transfigured presence of Jesus, the bread of the face, this is our God. It's not a cleverly devised myth. It's awe and mystery and wonder. And we receive him, again, hidden in beauty today. Amen.